let's ask God to help us uh, in our understanding of his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our true and living God, the Father of all who call upon you in the name of Christ, uh, we pray now uh, that scattered and apart, uh, your word would do its work in our lives. We thank you for this word, that we can open it and read it. We thank you that we can study it together. And gracious Father, we pray that it would help us to trust Jesus for life and it would equip us through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training to live as his followers. Help me to speak uh, your word truthfully and clearly in my weakness and help us all to receive it and understand it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, says Paul to Timothy, you know all in Asia have deserted me. And that's right, Timothy himself in the province of Asia knows firsthand Paul's unpopularity that he, his gospel, his way of doing ministry is an embarrassment to many who identify as believers, maybe even a cause of fear as he attracts the suspicion and condemnation of the state. Timothy knows Paul is reckoned controversial, disapproved, rejected. You know. And perhaps you know, believer in Jesus, the unpopularity of the gospel with your peers, the embarrassment of some who call themselves Christians with a message of repentance and faith and salvation from judgment, the suspicion of some that the Christian faith is not good for people, the hostility of others you know. But Timothy, as we heard in chapter 1, is called to be different from those who have deserted Paul, called to be unashamed of the Christian message about Jesus and to have a ministry that is unashamed of Paul and the gospel Paul has received from Jesus and in turn entrusted to Timothy. A ministry, chapter 1, verse 13, of holding on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me, a ministry of guarding the good deposit, the gospel deposit, entrusted to Timothy by Paul. But what will an unashamed ministry of the gospel look like for Timothy in the midst of suspicion of and hostility towards the gospel? What will that ministry involve for Timothy? And what does it look like for us to be unashamed of the gospel in the face of defection from gospel truth by some calling themselves Christians and in the midst of a wider suspicion of the goodness of the Christian gospel. Paul tells us in our reading that to be unashamed of the gospel will mean three things, a reliance on grace, a focus on the gospel's trustworthy transmission and sharing in suffering. You know all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, but you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To live unashamed of the gospel, to have a ministry faithful to the gospel, needs strength, strength to resist persuasive error and those who teach it, 
strength to persevere when so many are abandoning the truth, to not be carried along with their defection, strength to endure suspicion and misrepresentation, strength to keep on confessing Christ if, like Paul, your ministry is subject to the punishment of the state but also strength to resist temptation, to keep going, strength to be the good soldier, the successful athlete, the hard-working farmer Paul will later call Timothy and us to be. Strength, moral and spiritual, will be needed. But where can that strength be found? In our upbringing, family tradition, our training, some hidden well of strength deep within? None of those will do. Instead, Paul points Timothy to grace, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the source of the grace we need. And this is not a special kind of ministry grace. It's actually the grace every believer receives. It's generic grace, the grace given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Timothy's strength, our strength, is to be found in grace, in God's free, sovereign, generous kindness and favour towards us, which we have come to know and receive through trusting our Lord Jesus. Paul says in Romans 5 that justified by faith in Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, we have peace with God and through faith in Jesus, have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. You see, the grace we have in Christ is not on again, off again. We stand in grace. We live in grace. In Christ, we are always the recipients of grace. And this grace every believer receives in Christ is the source of the strength we need to live and minister unashamed of the gospel of Christ. But for whom is the strength grace supplies? Well, it's for the weak. And we will most know its strength when we are most aware of our weaknesses. Remember when Paul was finding himself hampered by that affliction he called his thorn in the flesh. He writes of that concerning this. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and in difficulties For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace, says Jesus, is sufficient for you. You know, to know that all the strength we need is found in grace, that the more we feel our need, the more help is there, is such a comfort. In committing ourselves to be unashamed of the gospel, we don't have to pretend to be stronger than we are. We don't have to minimise the challenge and we don't have to put our hope in ourselves. We turn outwards to grace, not inward to our own resources. And that grace, the source of strength, is not far away 
not difficult to obtain. Grace is freely given. It is generous and inexhaustible. It never runs out. It's not rationed to Jesus' people. We don't have to think. We can only come to God for help, you see, when we've been good, when we've done our bit as best as we can. For grace is gracious. It's kind and forgiving. We bring to grace our need, not our deserving. And grace is not some mechanical, impersonal reservoir that we turn on and off as we require strength where it all depends on us. Grace is God's active kindness that goes before us, not just after our requests. And his grace is not just strength for a task, it's the love for a person. We receive in grace care and kindness, the restoring and strengthening of our hearts in knowledge of God's love. In living and ministering unashamed of the gospel, Believers look to the grace of Christ for strength. Look in our known, confessed, felt weakness. For that grace is sufficient, sufficient to display God's power in our lives, even in our weaknesses. So where do you look for the strength to persevere in being unashamed of the gospel? On whom? Are you relying? How we begin the Christian life, saved by grace, is how we continue strengthened by grace. If you know that when you fail, when you've been tripped up in sin, when you haven't shown the courage you've wanted, well, if you know that we keep on in grace, you'll get up again. For you know grace is forgiving. And even if it's tough to see progress, you'll actually be optimistic to the end. For the grace of Christ is inexhaustible. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In this grace, their strength to persevere in a focused way on what is important, passing on to others the gospel you've been entrusted with, to others who themselves can share it with others in their own turn. In this way, the gospel that makes life and immortality known continues and goes to more and more people. What you heard from me, says Paul. Paul is again reminding us that the Gospels are given, the message entrusted by the Lord Jesus to his apostles. It's not a body of philosophy to be added to by those who follow. It's not a sentiment that must be clothed afresh in every generation and culture. It's not a morality constantly adapting to new situations. The Gospel is the message about Jesus. Now, the summary of that message is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again. But what Timothy has heard from Paul is more than that summary. It includes all that Paul has taught in 
person or by letter, taught, say, about righteousness by faith or about Jesus' pre-existence, about Jesus' reign, about the life of the age to come, about what it means to follow Jesus in a pagan world. And yes, what Timothy has heard also includes the Gospels and all that Jesus has taught. The Gospel is a message with a given content what we've received from the apostles, what Jude calls the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And it is a final and sufficient word. For you can't know more of God than you can in knowing Jesus, God's son. And the gospel brings us what we need, life and immortality through repentance and faith in Jesus. You cannot be more saved than you are in believing the gospel. And Paul reminds Timothy, this apostolic witness is a public message given before or through many witnesses, a public message for all. So it's not secret, esoteric, just for the inner circle like the teaching of the false teachers we meet in 2 Timothy. It's not myths and secret codes. It's light and it loves the light. Always a public message whose content in every age can be tested and confirmed by looking at the record of what has been taught in public by the apostles. This gospel is to be preserved and passed on. As it is for all, it must go to all, in all places and in all times. And the means God has chosen to bring the message to all people is by one generation of believers passing the gospel on to the next generation of faithful believers. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is both Timothy's urgent task in Asia and the focus of unashamed gospel ministry in every age. Timothy's task is urgent. Paul, as we've heard, is calling him to Rome as quickly as possible. So provision must be made in Asia for the continuation of the teaching of the apostolic gospel before Timothy leaves. In Timothy's case, considering the instruction Paul has already given about elders in the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy and the need for this gospel to be taught publicly and with authority in the churches of Asia, Timothy is looking for faithful men. But the word translated men also in many contexts includes women. And the principle for the transmission of the gospel here applies to both women and men. The gospel is to be entrusted to faithful people. Faithful, unashamed gospel ministry is always looking for its continuation and propagation. It's spread by entrusting the gospel for safekeeping to people with two characteristics, faithfulness and an ability to teach. Faithful has the sense of both believing and trustworthy. These are people who are committed to the gospel's truth, know for themselves its power to save. They live the gospel and they and able to teach. They are committed to passing it on accurately without addition or subtraction. Teaching is not less than the transmission of the content of the gospel. It must involve that, but it involves more than that. There's always a teaching to do. So teaching the gospels in teaching the gospel involves application. 
And this teaching can go on in many contexts, like Paul's ministry in the synagogue, in a rented hall from house to house, even in prison, in person, or by writing. Timothy must find people who are fit to receive the gospel deposit entrusted to him and able to pass it on. People who will, like him and Paul before him, be stewards of the gospel and who know that the one thing required of a steward is faithfulness. Now you might be thinking that what Paul is writing only applies to kind of official ministry and those specially gifted. But we should all want to be known as faithful. Every one of us should be believing and trustworthy, keen to be accurate in our transmission of the gospel in relaying the message of Jesus. And all of us can find ourselves in context where we teach whether it's going to be our own children around the dining room table or Sunday school or growth group or just in conversation. Every one of us should be seeking to be a faithful receiver and a faithful transmitter of the gospel for this gospel saves. This is the way people who are dying hear of life and immortality and it's by teaching that disciples of Jesus are made. But there is a cost in unashamed ministry, in being faithful in passing on the message entrusted to the apostles. As he had in 2 Timothy 1.8 where he called Timothy to be unashamed, Paul again calls Timothy to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There is no way to avoid it. If you are to be unashamed of the gospel, there will be suffering. And Paul introduces a picture of the kind of suffering that Timothy might face. It's the suffering of a good, a praiseworthy soldier of Christ Jesus. Now he's going to focus the cost of unashamed ministry of the gospel in the three further images in verses 4 to 6 that will help us understand what's being called for. But let's think first about what's involved in being a soldier. The life of a soldier in the Roman legions had many hardships. You joined up for 25 years and the Emperor Augustus had forbidden legionaries to marry during their service. They were often moved unable to settle anywhere. There was frequent training. You lived under orders and harsh discipline. Sometimes the living conditions were poor out in the open or in isolated forts. There was the presence of danger, the possibility of wounding or death in conflict and in between those times, mind-numbing boredom. Military life was tough in and of itself, Hardship went with the job. Hardship, suffering, goes with the job of being an unashamed minister of the apostles' witness to Jesus. And Paul does use three pictures to focus the suffering, the cost involved that Timothy and we will have to think over to know how they apply to our lives. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. 
Now, the first image carries on this image of the soldier to emphasise that the unashamed gospel servant must be single-minded, seeking to please the Lord Jesus in everything. You see, the word translated commanding officer is actually the the one who enlisted him. Jesus is the one who has called, who has enlisted the believer into his service. We seek to please him. The good soldier is single-minded. That means that she or he doesn't get entangled in the concerns of civilian life. And Entangled is getting caught up in something so that your movements are slowed or prevented entirely because you're held fast by what you're entangled in. It was used of, say, a sheep caught in thorns. Or you could think of troops caught in barbed wire. What can entangle Christ's soldiers is the concerns of civilian life, the affairs of everyday life. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Paul was thinking about something specific when he spoke of the affairs of everyday life, like marriage or work. Now, marriage, if we're honest, does compete for our attention, divide our interests. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, the unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Marriage does compete for our attention. But we know that Paul expected elders to be married, encouraged younger widows to be married, and observed without criticism that some of the apostles were accompanied in their work by their believing wives. So the entangling affairs of everyday life is not marriage in itself. Paul's not commanding celibacy. And while work does take time and attention, we also know that Paul commanded the Thessalonians to work and himself worked with his hands to support himself in ministry. So Paul is unlikely to be talking about work in itself. The emphasis is not so much on this or that specific activity of everyday life, but our attitude to that activity. Everyday life becomes an entanglement when it distracts us from pleasing our Lord, when we allow it to compete with our loyalty to him with taking direction from him. So, for example, Christians play sport, and some even do so to share the gospel. But when sport starts to call the shots in our life, determines our choices, leads us away from Christian service, well, we're entangled in it. Or politics, some Christians serve there, but when the pursuit of power takes priority over, say, the pursuit of godliness, when it determines our choices, that's an entanglement. What's true of sport and politics can be true of success in business or academic pursuits, retirement plans, home renovations. We can allow all those things to become entanglements, and yes, it can even be true of our marriages when pleasing our spouse takes priority over pleasing the Lord. Like a good soldier, we are to live to please Jesus, to devote ourselves to the gospel he's entrusted to us, 
And that may well mean saying no to a whole range of opportunities that aren't wrong in themselves. You don't want to get yourself in a situation, say, where for the sake of the business of everyday life, you can't teach the gospel, can't speak of it openly, can't take it to others. A small example. When I was younger, very much younger, I loved bushwalking. And I had a group of friends who would try and be walking or climbing every weekend. But you can't be away every weekend camping in the bush and be teaching Sunday school or leading youth group or encouraging your brothers and sisters in the church. So I had to make a choice. Bushwalking had to go. What threatens to entangle you? Are you single-minded in seeking to please the Lord who by his gracious call has enlisted you to his service? Now a way to answer that is to think about what determines, say, how you spend your time. Do you do things because you know they please Jesus? Or do you do what pleases you, hoping that Jesus doesn't forbid them? (laughs) Have you even asked that question? about whether your work or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your career goal pleases Jesus. should. Being a good soldier of Jesus means embracing the suffering of the single-minded who will set aside all else, in Paul's case, even life, to please Jesus. But Paul now introduces a new image to illustrate the cost of being unashamed in gospel ministry that of the athlete. Now the society that Paul lived in was, like ours, keen on athletic sporting competition. They had the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games and two more Panhellenic Games that all the Greek world could compete in. Athletics was actually a part of their education and local communities had their own versions of the more well-known games. So everyone knew that there were rules that governed participation in athletic competition just as today. In fact, an ancient commentator, Pausanias, wrote of the Olympic Games that it is the custom for athletes, their fathers and their brothers, as well as their trainers, to swear an oath upon slices of boar's flesh that in nothing will they sin against the Olympic Games. The athletes take this further oath also, that for 10 successive months they have strictly followed the regulations for training. If competitors were found breaking the rules, whether in preparation or in competition, they could be fined, excluded from the games or flogged. Just as modern competitors guilty of doping can be excluded or stripped of their awards. So when Paul said, if anyone competes as an athlete, He's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. They all said, yes, that's right. And the point? Well, in the competition Christ calls us to, the unashamed ministry of the gospel, you can't compete on your own terms, by your own rules, but only by Jesus' rule. The cost of being unashamed of the gospel is a commitment to a disciplined life of living as a genuine Christian according to Christ's word in all things, of being dedicated and determined. 
day after day, month after month, year after year, to do what he says. For there are no shortcuts to the prize. And to the military and athletic images, Paul adds a third, that of the farmer. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. The cost of being unashamed of the gospel, the suffering of guarding the good deposit, is being diligent, committed to hard work and knowing the weariness of strenuous toil. There were no air-conditioned tractor cabs for ancient farmers. It was all done by hand, from sowing to reaping, from planting to picking, and it had to be continued in all weathers, in all seasons. Farm work is continuous, and as one commentator has said, it is totally devoid of excitement and glamour, remote from all the glamour of peril and applause. And farm work is work with what you might also called delayed gratification, isn't it? There are months between sowing and harvesting. You don't see returns straight away. Oh, and if you're an orchardist, you may not see return for your efforts for several years, but you keep going, watering, fertilising, pruning and planting some more. The Lord Jesus worked hard. We see that in the Gospels, don't we? Sometimes so pressed by the crowds that he had no time to eat having to get up early to have any time to himself. The Apostle Paul modelled the hard work he called for. You can get a sense of his tells in 2 Corinthians 6 and 11. And he could say of his labours in relation to the other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whatever it might look like for you, Whatever responsibility you're entrusted with by our Lord for sharing and teaching the gospel, we should work hard at it, for the gospel is the word of life. Again, a small example. John Chapman was a famous evangelist in Sydney. He told us that when he had just started teaching, he wanted to find ways of having fruitful conversations with his colleagues in the common room that would allow him to talk about Jesus. He wanted them to know Jesus. And so he decided he'd prepare himself by getting to the common room early, scanning the newspaper, looking for two or three interesting stories, and then working out how he could use them to lead to conversations about the gospel. That's what he did consistently. He had a desire to share the gospel. And he made it fruitful by equipping himself to share the gospel, by working at it. We have certainly to know how to rest. We mustn't burden ourselves with the crushing thought that it all depends on us. But we should work hard in the ministry of the gospel and be willing to pay the cost of weariness. (coughs) And it is wearying to stick at teaching in private and in public, day after day, year after year, like the hard-working farmer. But remember in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the man the master is displeased with is the man who went and buried his talent. 
a man who had been entrusted with a great treasure as every believer is who knows that Jesus saves, entrusted with a great treasure and did nothing with it. The master described that servant as wicked and lazy. We don't want to be that servant. But instead be those who gain the rewards that Paul speaks of here. Did you see them? The reward of the focused, single-minded soldier is pleasing the one who enlisted him. The reward of the disciplined, dedicated athlete is the winner's crown. The reward of the hard-working farmer is to have a certain share, the first share in the fruit of his labours. Now these may just be features of the images Paul uses, but they bring to mind what is said elsewhere in Scripture of the diligent servant and the victorious athlete. In the parable of the talents I've just mentioned, our Lord welcomes those who use well what's been entrusted to them with these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And won't that be worth hearing at the last day? And at the end of a life that has run the race and kept the faith, Paul can say, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me but to all who have loved his appearing. That victor's crown, which is being declared righteous in the judgment on the last day of being welcomed into peace with God forever, is for all who persevere, devoted to Jesus. There is a cost in being unashamed of the gospel. It's a call to suffering, the suffering of the good soldier who says no to being wholly absorbed in ordinary life so that he can single-mindedly serve his Lord. The suffering of the athlete who lives a disciplined life of determined devotion to the rules of the competition, the suffering of the hard-working farmer, the weariness of the one who perseveres in all weathers and seasons in cultivating the gospel seed, in nurturing believers' growth. But what responding to that call for suffering will look like in Timothy's life exactly? What responding to that call for single-mindedness, discipline and diligence will look like in your life will take thought. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything sometimes, often actually, to know the application of some part of God's word to your life, you have to think about it. You've got to put in the work. Here especially you need to reflect on what God's word is saying and reflect, reflect on your life. To ask, for example, where am I being entangled? Where am I not living up to what Jesus calls for from his followers? Where am I, say, slacking off in pursuing and using opportunities to share and teach the gospel? To ask perhaps even the more foundational question. If I'm not doing those things, if I'm not single-minded, if I'm not disciplined and diligent, am I convinced and grateful that the gospel Paul preaches has in the grace of our Lord brought life and immortality to me. Am I convinced I know the living God in the gospel of his son and I can entrust my life to him? God calls us 
to think about what we hear and then act on it. And that's good for us. It's actually the way we mature, come to have a discipleship of our own where we do what we do, not because someone else has told us we should do it, but because we are convicted by Jesus from his word that he wants us to do something. It's by acting on that conviction that you grow in your trust in the Lord Jesus as you find him faithful and that conviction will encourage the perseverance in suffering that builds character and hope in your life. You need that conviction because you won't in the end keep on suffering for someone else's good idea about how you should live your life. But you will for the Lord who has given you life and will raise you from the dead. But thinking over what God says to us in his word takes time. So will you take the time tonight Ask yourself if you are the good soldier, disciplined athlete, the hard-working farmer, and not let this word just drift away, giving yourself time to reflect on what you hear taught from God's word. What you read in his word is a good habit, a daily habit to get into. And you should get into that habit because Paul is confident that God will bless that thinking. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that is a promise. Of course, it's not a promise that the Lord will make you a brain surgeon or help you with your accounting exams. No, everything is all the things Paul's been talking about here. What Timothy needs to know to live as a good soldier of Jesus. Paul is confident of the work of God's spirit in Timothy's life, that through the spirit Timothy will be led to understand and apply the truth of what Paul has just written. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have the same spirit and the same patient Lord who wants us to grow in our service of him, in fruitful service of the gospel. So, unashamed of the gospel, of the Lord Jesus who has destroyed death, the gospel he has sent into the world through his apostles to give life and immortality to all who repent and believe, the gospel that has brought you and I life and immortality. Unashamed of the gospel, commit yourself to be like Timothy, not someone who abandons the gospel and its preachers at the first sign of trouble and opposition, when it looks like it will cost you something to follow Jesus. No, someone who is strong in grace, focused on being trustworthy in your own handling of the gospel and faithful in passing it on. Someone who is willing to pay the cost, to suffer for the gospel, the cost of being single-minded in living to please Jesus, of living a disciplined and determined life as a follower of Jesus until the end of your race of working hard in Jesus' service, in sharing and teaching the gospel as you have opportunity. Is that you? Is that the life you are living now? Think over what Paul has written. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything, in all that you need to live as his faithful follower. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
Uh, we pray in your mercy that your word would do its work in our lives, that you would move us to think it over, to know how we can be that single-minded soldier of Christ, that disciplined and determined competitor for Christ who lives according to Christ's word so that we can be that hard-working farmer who has the first share of the crop. Please work in our lives by your grace so that we will be reckoned amongst those who are faithful, those who are trustworthy in transmission of the gospel, those who are determined to live to please Jesus, who long to hear that word, well done, good and faithful servant, last day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.